Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Megan Bowler, Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, University of Toronto. Megan, welcome to Pipeline. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Winston. So, um, uh, our listeners are interested in knowing, how did you come to philosophical work in education? Uh, what was, what was your, uh, your entry point into this field? I entered into philosophy of ed uh, for many years not knowing that I was, in fact, doing philosophy of education. So, it began because I, be, I commenced graduate school okay. in philosophy on the East Coast, uh, about a year after finishing my undergraduate mm-hmm. in philosophy. And at that time, what had come to be um, one of the buzz things that was happening at the time was uh, Richard Rorty's work, Bernstein's mm-hmm. work, uh, a lot of following of the, the uh, Thomas Kuhn's uh, mm-hmm. scientific revolutions and really beginning to question notions of scientific objectivity. So I was in a graduate seminar that was about, uh, really about philosophy of science. And at that time, uh, I could see in this small seminar that a key aspect of this question of subjectivity and objectivity, et cetera, I mean, those were days where we were thinking about, you know, philosophers were debating relativism and, Mm. you know, the, the... the boat had been <laughs> seriously rocked, right? Okay. I mean, so the waves were, were tossing and turning mm. um, the classic assumptions of Western philosophy. And what I saw at that moment was that the question that most interested me had to do with the role of emotion as a kind of knowledge as, as in terms of how it informs ethics, in terms of how it motivates much of what we do and constitutes, um, uh, very much constitutes actively epistemologies, but also social hierarchies and mm. what can and cannot be spoken about mm. in the ivory tower or in classrooms. So in that particular instance, I could tell that it was, well, when I tried to bring up the question of emotion and affect in relation to questions about the philosophy of science and sure. questioning objectivity and et cetera and rationality, there was, there was dead silence in the room. Oh. There was no uptake of that question. And I, I, and I write this in my book, uh, Feeling Power, that it was clear that um, that voice of a woman asking about emotion uh, fit very well into the necessary binaries of philosophy that I I could speak about the question of emotion uh, and really it was an unspoken question about about gender and uh, the patriarchal aspects of philosophy as a, a profession as a profession and of the Enlightenment project so there was no space for that and mm. at that same moment there was uh, a conference called After the Second Sex, and um, I think Donna Haraway herself was not there, but Evelyn Fox Keller, who mm. wrote the book Gender and Science and had studied with, 
with, um, I mean, worked closely with Donna Haraway, et cetera. There was a lot of feminists at this conference after the second sex. So this was about 1983 or 82, something like that. And I, I could sense phenomenologically at a bodily level, a corporeal level, that I could not remain within the, the constraints of philosophy per se. Sure. And um, I applied again to an interdisciplinary graduate program, History of Consciousness at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Okay. And I was really just following my gut, you know. Okay. So uh, ironically, I was following what Colbert would call truthiness, which was, you know, <laughs> I didn't have any facts about, you know, the profession or whatever, but sure. I knew I had to follow my gut and um, follow my truth. So I just made my way. I, I was accepted to that interdisciplinary mm. graduate program. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to understand emotion and the politics of emotion, and um, so that uh, that in fact was not my entry into philosophy of ed. I continued to do this work. I felt very um, alone and isolated in that because there was very little outside of psychology that wrote about emotions and affect in a very particular way that mm -hmm. did not interest me. It didn't address the question I had, which was how do emotions create the social hierarchies of race, class, gender, identity, etc.? How do they shape society as we know it? And, and how, are they, how are emotions and affect um, intertwined with power and power relations? And so this was the emergence of Foucault's popularity, et cetera. So there were way, there were tools I had to look at that, but I did feel very alone in terms of there wasn't a lot of work to look at at the time that was analyzing that. However, I was teaching throughout, everyone in the UC system teaches, right. and I was aware of how much emotion was in the classroom, mm. either between people or between, uh, in terms of people's students' relationship to their work, et cetera and just how emotion operated in all of these spaces of higher learning. Therefore, I decided to focus my analysis of emotion sure. in a sort of a post-structural cultural studies kind of approach. I, the graduate program in history of consciousness is really about radical semiotics and mm. et cetera. So uh, I decided to focus my, my examination of emotion in the context of classrooms in higher education. Okay. So it ended up that education was part of what I examined in, um, in my dissertation. And as I was heading into the job market, my uh, supervisor, Donna Haraway, said, Megan, cast your net wide. And so when I got to job market moment, I was applying in philosophy, in women's studies, and I hadn't actually uh, taken any formal courses in education, okay. um, but uh, in my dissertation, I had read a lot about uh, education wow. and philosophy of ed. So there's two ways I came into philosophy of ed. One is Deanne Bogdan, okay. who was a professor at, at OISE, where I am now. Um, she came through... Uh, there was a. I had a, a colleague at History of Consciousness from Canada, from Toronto, mm -hmm. and um, Julia Crete. And Julia had studied with Dion Bogdan, and she knew Dion was coming to Santa Cruz. She said, "Dion Bogdan is going to be here. You must meet her." Okay. And I actually had not known until I met Dion. And Dion said, "Go to the library and look up Philosophy of Ed." journal and look up ed theory sure. i didn't know that there were those sure. folks sure. thinking along these lines because the the uh, phenomenal mm -hmm. faculty in my grad program that was not their 
Right. It was not their thing. And right. we were all doing different, all the students were doing different projects. So oh. then uh, the, the way in terms of jobs that I came into philosophy of ed, uh, I literally was, you know, looking in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, as we all do, there was a big, huge half-page ad saying um, there's a job in the University of Auckland, New Zealand, in uh, feminist theory, cultural studies, and history of education. Okay. So I applied, and um, I had the, the training and sure. disciplinary background to do that, and that's how I officially came into the world of education. And then staying in that world, um, I knew that I needed to find the most uh, interdisciplinary and progressive place that was doing work in humanities and education. Uh, and that's how I just kept kept applying, kept applying to mm. Boise and University of Toronto for many years. Sure. And uh, finally uh, got here. So, uh, because I do feel that especially at the time, there was a very, very, um, you know, premier philosophy of education program mm -hmm. at OISE, and it, and it is, is known as a quite progressive place to do that, that work, so I was very pleased to arrive here. Um, the sure. times they are changing, of course, but of course. And, um, humanities have taken a big hit at OISE, but uh, that, that's how I came into philosophy of education. Yeah, so, so it sounds as though, um, to hear you tell it, um, you had that early experience of sort of being uh, somewhat frustrated with, with uh, philosophy and the way that philosophy didn't respond to uh, uh, what you saw as an important issue uh, uh, there in emotions and, uh, and science, right, and in the way that we come to know and, and so forth. Um, but then it seems that uh, your experiences uh, teaching uh, when you were in the new program uh, uh, in California uh, then sort of uh, brought you into thinking about education more directly, and then it was, uh, to some degree, a bit of happenstance and chance encounter uh, that then brought you into philosophy of education. But it seems that throughout all of that, there's been, uh, uh, to, to, to hear your articulation of it, there's been this sense of a connection to um, uh, 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 sort of a perspective that hasn't really been addressed, explored, uh, encountered enough, that is to say, uh, the emotional component, right? And of course, you've worked on other things, but, but how have you tied uh, emotion into some of the other, uh, uh, well, not some of, mm -hmm. many of the other things mm -hmm. that you've, that you've mm -hmm. worked on and mm -hmm. worked through? Yes, and people will sometimes inquire, what's the relationship between some of my earlier work that was sure. really focusing on emotion, and I now do a lot of work on um, how people use digital and social media for dissent or yeah. in social movements, and what what is a common denominator, a common factor across those is my interest in bringing uh, marginalized knowledge or marginalized voices yeah. to the foreground. Sure. So whether we're talking about the changing landscape of media mm -hmm. and the ways in which um, different kinds of marginalized voices or communities can have a voice in the public sphere. Uh, similarly, the question of emotion and of course, ironically now, affect is just this very popular um, mm. area, but it strikes me that still we are struggling for um, for emotion and affect to have a place, to have a voice um, in in public spheres. So that yeah, yeah. There, there is so that, a that, that a brings thing. that yeah that brings that connection together. Um, what are some of the ways that we ought to be thinking about social media, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, uh, as we start thinking about uh, the changing landscape of? Mm -hmm collective uh, opportunities to communicate with one another. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, what are some of the things that we ought to be thinking, uh, thinking about uh, in that domain? As, as we all know, there, there are so many debates about the role of social media in 
yeah. in our society, um, the role that it plays vis-a-vis -vis, um, news or um, being informed, and the role that it plays in so-called democracies, the sure. role, but also we've seen so many examples of how social media is used under other kinds of authoritative regimes, sure. right? So it's not just a question of uh, access to a public sphere or voice in democracy. It's all around the world we're seeing that. Right. And, and I think all around the world we are faced with uh, different kinds of crises, primarily economic and environmental, that are connected now by global transnational capital. So I think in some ways, in, in my humble opinion, there, mm. there is a, a crucial moment here of a kind of global consciousness or, or shared collective um, material experience of generations around the globe seeing very little economic prom promise or future for themselves sure. or their children, et cetera. And of course, that's what the quote unquote Arab Spring sure. to a great degree was about, the Occupy movement, et cetera, sure. et cetera. And I think we haven't seen the end of that sure. at all. And so it's, it, what is the role of social media in that? Well, one of the roles it's played is not only allowing small individuals like you or me to mm. put our voice out there, but there's also a way in which that allows us to know that there are other people around the world who share, sure. um, with whom we can share information or we can glean in information. So even people, uh, you know, even the high, high, high level officials who want to control information. I mean, this is a crisis point for, um, for propaganda, as mm. it's been known, and for the world of um, public relations that's sure. so crucial to politics and electoral politics and dirty politics and every kind of politics, sure. right? Because even uh, Rumsfeld said, you know, a lie, I mean, he was aware in 2005 of the sure. challenge that that personal digital devices that that those presented a real challenge to mm. power and in the ways that it had been controlled, the power of access to information and sure. circulation of information. And he mm. was acutely aware that it could not be controlled easily, mm. and that um, cell phones and the capacity to um, for for user generators. Um, you know, you, as the Time magazine said, who's the person of the year? You, you sure. know, all of us who are producing this. So um, this is having a huge impact. And I think often conversations get derailed mm. into the question of whether, you know, which comes first, uh, human beings who are brave and hit the streets or mm. do, is social media the catalyst of such and such a movement? I, I, uh, to me, that's a, a red herring question. Right. I don't... It's clear that uh, the two are influencing one another, as you know, McLuhan might have told us. Mm. You know, um, the medium, uh, the medium is the message, and so there is a kind of soft technological determinism happening. Huh. I do believe, but we also are making choices right. about how we use those tools. At the same time, I have colleagues, and in my recent edited book, DIY Citizenship, Ron Debert, who's a, a colleague here at University of Toronto and runs a place called the Citizen Lab um, and is 
works a lot on, on questions of how internet is accessed in countries that are censoring that. Mm. Um, his belief is that these are the halcyon years mm. of the democratic public sphere of the internet and that oh, we're going to look back on this and say those were the years. Sure. And so he's warning us to enjoy it while we can. And one of the ways I really see that happening is like with everyone's cell phone, it's like we're living in little gated communities. We right. are not any longer in the wild, wild west of the internet. Sure. We are in these uh, very uh, discreet, um, bounded, uh, gated communities through the apps on our phone. We do not have to encounter anything we don't want to, mm. right? And that, that's just one small example. More important is the question of who's going to be able to access uh, this, who's going to be able to afford it, um, what, when and how will governments shut it down, and et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps sure. we will be surprised. I'm not as, as uh, perhaps as pessimistic or cynical as my colleague, but um, I've always been the one uh, saying, you know, there is at what's, what's called a microblogging. Okay. Um, microblogging being um, the small level user generated content that's some will say, well, uh, like Jody Dean, for example, a political scientist who's renowned for this, she argues that all of the stuff that we're seeing is actually just what she calls communicative capitalism. Okay. It's capitalism benefiting from allowing us to blow off a lot of steam, creating a whole bunch of noise that we can't even, we don't even have time to sift through, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there are people on the other end of the spectrum who think this micro level voicing of marginalized voices mm. um, is really neither here, it's just more noise. Mm. Um, I happen to be, I, I don't share that view. I have always believed that um, that this what's termed you know microblogging or these small interventions of dissent that they do add up and uh, and not and they're not only just small uh, you know they're not just small individuals voicing this they are often representing very large networks and communities etc so uh, I think currently we we are witnessing um, the possibility of uh, using tools of communication in ways that we have never had access to be before and historically are unprecedented. So um, I, I do think the time is now to sure. act and use these tools um, for whatever vision uh, we might share collectively. Uh, I, yeah, I think the time is, is definitely now. Sure, and, and to some degree, I suspect that given the uh, articulation that you've just put forward, um, uh, the educational question is uh, sort of tied in there, mm -hmm. right? I mean, mm -hmm. as uh, these sort of, as we sort of inform uh, these structures, these structures also form us and form, uh, 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 to some degree, uh, our sense of the world around us. So. Uh, uh, this does seem like a very fertile ground for uh, folks who care about education, who care about communication, and who care about marginalized communities mm -hmm. uh, to definitely, definitely engage. Mm -hmm. Megan, thank you so much for this conversation. Mm, it's really, really pleasure. been a treat. My pleasure, and I am so glad that you are doing this work and uh, inviting uh, scholars of different stripes to figure out how to, uh, how to get our, our work out into larger public spheres. So oh, thank thank you. you so much. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.